0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. What's your favorite food? Oftentimes, it's food we ate growing up. For me, it was my mother's potato bhaji and her chicken curry, which I still cannot replicate. I grew up eating Indian food almost every day. So when I went away to college, the cafeteria food was the worst hot sauce saved me from all the blandness, a discovery that meant the freshman 15 eventually got me too. Now fast forward 20 years and my diet is mostly westernized, but the food I enjoy eating the most is the food my parents once prepared, my connection to a culture I know as a second generation American. Now, South Asians make up 23% of the world's population. And among us is a startling statistic. Researchers say South Asians have an increased chance of developing cardiovascular disease and diabetes. In fact, 6 out of 10 cardiovascular disease patients around the world are of South Asian descent. 6 out of 10. That's according to the Masala study. What's the cause? Is it the food we eat, genetics, social determinants, or several factors? Today, where we live, we learn about the research focused on South Asians living in America. Coming up, we talk to a co-investigator at the Masala study. Since 2010, the study has followed participants' blood pressure, insulin resistance, and other measures to understand diabetes and cardiovascular risk among this group. And coming up later, we hear from a food studies scholar at NYU and talk to a Connecticut dietitian. You can join us too, share a comment on our Facebook page, or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Dr. Neelay Shah, a cardiologist and faculty at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine and co-investigator at the Masala Study. Dr. Shah, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, uh, tell us what the Masala study stands for. And when we think about the word Masala, that word means spice mixture.
1: That's right. Uh, so the Masala study, which stands for the Mediators of Atherosclerosis in South Asians Living in America uh, study is a, a community cohort of South Asian adults who are primarily first-generation immigrants that was started, as, as you said, uh, in 2010 and have been followed since then.
0: Now, atherosclerosis, can you define that for us?
1: Sure. So atherosclerosis is the process of the development of plaques in the arteries of the body. Uh, We most commonly think about it as it pertains to plaques and blockages developing in the heart arteries, but this can be anywhere in the body.
0: I had referenced that 60% of the world's heart disease patients are South Asians, and South Asians also have the highest death rate from heart disease in the U.S. compared to other ethnic groups. And so uh, tell us about how you got involved and what's behind this startling statistic.
1: Uh, So my involvement in this space and work really started from an early age and seeing what was going on in my community. Um, I grew up in the South Asian community of Chicago. And as I went from childhood through adolescence into young adulthood, I would hear more and more stories of people in my family and people in our community experiencing uh, heart disease and heart disease related events, people who needed to go to the hospital and get surgery for heart disease. And it just became more and more common And so as i decided that i wanted to train in medicine uh, this became a particular area of interest of mine because i I reflected on what my experience was growing up in in my own family and some of the statistics that you mentioned they are indeed startling and and some more that continue to really motivate me are is that the south asian community tends to experience not only more heart disease at a higher proportion than other communities. But at younger ages, too, on average, uh, heart disease starts to appear about 10 years earlier in people of South Asian descent compared with other, other groups. And this really prompted me to try to understand why and what we can do about it. So the the bulk of the available information we have about heart disease in the South Asian community really comes from larger population-based research studies uh, with an increasing number of uh, focus, increasing focus on more specific communities in the diaspora, in the UK, and the US, but also a growing uh, research effort in, in South Asian countries themselves. Um, the This evidence suggests that a large bulk of this excess risk for heart disease that is experienced by people who are South Asian can be attributed to the usual risk factors we think about for heart disease, things like diabetes and poor quality diets, not getting enough physical activity, uh, and high blood pressure. But then there's also some component that's not fully explained by some of these traditional risk factors. And that is an active area of study. I don't know that we've completely understood exactly what those factors are, but their hypothesis is that it's a combination of things like social determinants of health and another active area of study is whether there is a genetic component or not. Um, It's not exactly clear whether the answer to that is yes or no, but it is something that is actively being investigated by several groups. Mm
0: Now, when we think about uh, risk, uh, you'd mentioned, you know, diet can be a risk factor, but I wonder if you can talk about, even when we think about weight and uh, body mass index or BMI, and what this 12-year study has found related to BMI and indicators among uh, South Asians of who are at risk of cardiovascular disease, what can you tell us?
1: So. Uh body composition body weight and bmi are important considerations when thinking about what uh, are the risk factors for heart disease and heart-related complications and here in the u.s we often encounter a standard uh, categorization of bmi to identify an individual as being normal weight or perhaps being overweight or a medical categorization of obese And the information we've learned from the Masala study and other work uh, suggests that people who are South Asian tend to have a higher risk for developing heart disease related risk factors related to body weight and body composition at lower BMIs. And so, for example, uh, the standard categorization for a BMI uh, in which somebody would potentially be labeled uh, overweight, starts at a BMI of 25 kilograms per meter squared. And what we've learned is that that inflection point, that point where we start to see increased risk may be lower for individuals who are South Asian, um, perhaps somewhere around 23 uh, 23 kilograms per meter squared. That is uh, another area of active investigation, what exactly that, that threshold or cut point might optimally be. And it may be different for different South Asian populations based on the context in which individuals live. But the, the bottom line is that the epidemiology suggests that the risk for heart disease and the risk for heart disease related risk factors like diabetes and high blood pressure, which are related to body weight and composition starts at a lower BMI in, in, uh, in South Asian individuals. And in parallel to that, there is this, phenotype or this characteristic of South Asian individuals that tends to be seen more often, which is this uh, pattern of people who would be considered normal weight, but are metabolically abnormal. So have things like diabetes or high triglycerides, which are all factors that are related to heart health uh, and are traditionally thought of being related to uh, body composition that is um, suboptimal like being overweight or being obese. Um, But those factors tend to emerge even among normal weight in individuals who are South Asian.
0: That's an important uh, finding, as you mentioned, that's still ongoing. But when we Mm -hmm. think about, you know, if a a doctor is seeing someone who's of South Asian descent and they have a normal weight, thinking that, you know, they may not be at risk uh, for Mm -hmm. a particular Mm -hmm. disease. But there are other factors at play. And that's why it's important uh, to learn more about the foods that someone's eating and other risk factors. Dr. Shah.
1: Yeah, I agree completely uh, that. The implications in part are that when someone like myself who sees patients in the clinic encounters a patient who is South Asian, perhaps I should be prompted to screen or look for other heart disease-related risk factors, even if a person would be categorized as being at normal weight.
0: Now, another uh, finding from the Masala study, again, this is a 12... it's been going on for 12 years now, is where uh, people of South Asian descent may store their body fat and, and why that um, can be a risk factor as well, Dr. Shah.
1: Yes, that's an important point. And perhaps one of the uh, predominant findings of the Masala study so far. Uh, so when individuals store fat in, in their body, uh, most commonly that tends to be what's called subcutaneous fat or fat that's stored under the skin. The Masala study uh, of the original participants who have been followed since 2010 uh, did special imaging of the participants to better understand where fat is stored in the, in people who identify as South Asian. And there was a higher amount of fat that was identified on average stored in what are called ectopic areas or essentially fat. That's not really where it's supposed to be. Uh, And the areas that uh, stood out uh, in the, participants who are South Asian tended to be fat that was visceral, so fat that surrounded the organs, uh, particularly in the abdomen, as well as uh, fat that was building up in the liver. And there is now over the last few years, increasing evidence that this kind of ectopic fat, or visceral fat that's stored around the organs, stored in the liver, is particularly contributory to the development of metabolic abnormalities like diabetes and contributes to the development of atherosclerosis and heart disease risk. And so the why is still an ongoing question. Why does this tend to occur in individuals who are South Asian, perhaps more than other groups? Um, And and we don't yet have an answer to that, but it does help us better understand why this population may Uh, experience the excess risk.
0: Now, I understand that today as we're learning about the Masala study with Dr. Nileh Shah, cardiologist and faculty at Northwestern University, co-investigator of the 12-year Masala study, I understand, Dr. Shah, that this study is now expanding to include second-generation South Asians and also looking to expand. We talk about uh, South Asians, not just focusing on uh, Indians, but also Pakistani and Bangladeshi Americans. Tell us more.
1: That's exactly right. So the Masala program, just to take a step back, the Masala program started uh, in 2010, uh, led by Dr. Alka Kaneya at the University of California in San Francisco, and Dr. Namrata Kandula here at Northwestern, started as a uh, cohort of primarily first generation South Asian Americans, uh, and uh, the original enrollment in the program, most individuals identified as being Indian. Uh, the first cohort of MASALA participants were enrolled from about 2010 to 2013. And then individuals came back for a second visit about 2016 to 2018 and are now coming back for their third visit uh, through about 2024. And the focus right now in this third visit is to better understand uh, the heart, the changes in heart structure and uh, blood vessel health or vascular health that um, may occur over time in individuals who are South Asian. But as the study proceeded, there was increasing recognition of a couple of things. First, uh, as you said, there is a growing population of second-generation South Asians, um, of this first cohort of South Asian individuals who immigrated to the US somewhere between the 1970s through the 1990s. Uh, As these individuals became older and started having families, now we have a second generation uh, uh, cohort of individuals. And the hypothesis is that these individuals likely have different factors that influence their health compared to their first generation immigrant parents. Uh, You know, they grew up in different environments, they may have different social determinants. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one active ongoing effort is to recruit and enroll The adult children of the original masala participants into the masala second generation study, which is actively ongoing and will try to understand not only what are the unique factors that may contribute to the heart health of second generation South Asians, but how does the health of parents influence their kids and how does the health of kids potentially influence their parents and in parallel. It was recognized uh, as the cohort started to grow, there there was some uh, secondary enrollment that occurred during the original first 10 years of the study. It was recognized that even within the South Asian community, it is not a a uniform community. There's quite a bit of variability and variation uh, across multiple different kinds of identities in the South Asian community. And, and one of the identities that that particularly stood out was individuals who identified as Indian versus Pakistani versus Bangladeshi. And so in this current wave, there's also a parallel new enrollment of participants into the MASALA program uh, who are primarily identifying as Pakistani or Bangladeshi to supplement the information that we have about Indian Americans.
0: That's really interesting. And I understand by 2024, the cohort will include about 2,300 participants in, in California, Illinois, and the New York area. Again, you're hearing Dr. Nelia Shaw, cardiologist and faculty at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, co-investigator at the Masala Study. Now the Masala Study website has a health tip section on a range of topics like how to eat low carb as a vegan, a healthy Salvation Asian diet, how to order healthy at Indian restaurants, and also a carb counting tool but the website also has Punjabi fitness videos by Dilpreet Batal. Let's take a listen. Breathe in. Breathe out. They're going to see a switch cross the other side. Breathe in. Breathe out. And the link to that Masala study website is on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Coming up, we'll continue talking with Dr. Shaw and hear from a food studies scholar at NYU. You can join us too, especially if you're of South Asian descent. Uh, If you think about uh, your lifestyle, the food you eat, and your ties to your culture, uh, all important in this conversation, you can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're learning about the MASALA study. It started in 2010 to better understand why people of South Asian ancestry living in the U.S. have higher cardiovascular disease risk compared to other racial and ethnic groups. With us is study co-investigator Dr. Neelia Shaw, cardiologist and faculty at Northwestern School of Medicine. Now, diet can be a risk factor for heart disease, but avoiding certain foods is easier said than done. There's a connection to what we prepare for ourselves and for our families because food can be an important part of our culture my next guest is a food studies scholar who wrote a book about the relationship between food and identity among working-class hindu bengali americans krishnendu ray is professor of food and nutrition studies at new york university also author of the book the migrants table Meals and Memories in Bengali American Households. And Krishnendu is also a former faculty member at the Culinary Institute of America. Krishnendu, welcome to our show. Thanks a lot, Lucy. Krishnendu, uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your book and and how you looked into the the changing food habits of Bengali immigrants to the US.
2: Yeah, so it's a book based on a survey of 126 households who are mostly, uh, what Dr. Shah was talking about, First generation um, uh, Bengali Americans, and they mostly came between the 1960s, uh, specifically 1970s into the 1990s. Uh, and, um, and and so uh, what what it looked at was a survey of uh, Kolkata Bengalis uh, before migration, which is used the city called uh, previously. And then a survey of their food habits, uh, what changes, uh, what changed, what did not change, what did people think about it after their migration. And most of these people migrated between the 1970s and the 1990s. Mm.
0: You're a little hard to hear, uh, Krishnanda, if you could uh, sit a little bit closer to your device so our listeners I can hear you well. (laughs) No problem. So when we think about um, uh, how eating patterns change after migration, you know, both uh, day-to-day versus, you know, the special holidays, uh, what did you find?
2: Yeah, so one of the um, uh, interesting uh, findings was that breakfast uh, in terms of the daily cycle uh, changed most dramatically. Uh, and while uh, dinner became more conserving Bengali in a Bengali household, meaning dinner would be typically fish, rice, sauteed green, uh, uh, and dal, which is legumes, all forms of legumes, uh, uh, which is very common in a Bengali-American household. In contrast to dinner, uh, breakfast became uh, much more convenience-oriented, uh toasts uh breakfast cereals uh often sweet of course breakfast cereals and that was driven by two things as i talked to people one was convenience uh, because early morning long commutes uh, children going to school uh, families uh, going to work uh, kind of put pressure on households uh, especially in the morning and most of these people were middle class people who had migrated from a context where cheap labor was available so say a typical whole wheat chapati would have been made at home but by domestic help and once they came into the united states and once they migrated into the united states that uh help went away Uh, so the pressure for convenience for breakfast food uh, convenience food became much more acute and there was a second sense a psychological sense that most of these migrants were looking at breakfast as a food to prepare themselves for the American world. They were almost like bracing themselves. So they were ready to open the door into the American world with breakfast. And in some ways, dinner was the opverse. They were ready to shut the door behind them and create a cocoon, a cultural cocoon, for dinner in the evening. So if you just looked at breakfast, you would say uh, these people had totally assimilated. But if you looked at, at dinner, you would find that these folks had, in fact, kept their uh, culinary culture quite intact. So that was one of the kind of the daily cycle that became very visible in the 120 cities
0: now when we think about other traditional foods uh, that um, maybe even bengalis uh, uh, enjoy like their sweets uh, Ruskala, uh, also we think of fried namkeens and also this the the amount of sweets made with clarified butter or ghee for diwali and navratri navratri can i wonder if you can tell us more about that
2: yeah so these are bengalis and these were mostly hindu bengalis that i had studied and so durga puja is very important especially a specific festival, uh, a ritual uh, called Doshami, which is the 10th day of the Durga Puja. And that is when you, for instance, the younger generation and the younger cohort goes around to uh, other uh, Bengali households and uh, touch their feet, ask for blessing, and in exchange, you basically get sweets and uh, and Shingaras, the Bengali word for uh, samosa is Shingara. Uh, that was an important part of a ritual. It's, I would say, probably the food that Dr. Shah would not uh, (laughs) recommend. Uh, But uh, this was, remember, this is once a year, right? Mm. And so I think it's an important question also of frequency and portion. But uh, that was a very important part of a ritual about being Bengali. In some ways, as important or even more important than, than, say, the uh, ritualization of dinner that I talked about
0: before. Mm. Given what you shared with us, uh, uh, I'm wondering if you can maybe respond uh, to the Masala study and the findings that Dr. Shah laid out for us.
2: Yeah, so I I really loved uh, the study. I was a little apprehensive because uh, diet has become a very contentious issue in South Asia uh, and there's a tendency to oversimplify um, uh, meaning, uh, kind of, there's a bit of magical thinking that either one avoiding one food or adding one superfood or becoming a vegetarian is going to solve our problem. And the study shows, after over a decade of study, uh, the masala study shows that the situation uh, is a lot more complex. Uh, and for instance, almost half the participants are vegetarians, uh, but in fact, have higher risk factors, uh, partly because of. Uh, To see the things you mentioned before, fried food, dairy, uh, fat, sugar, especially uh, uh, sugar consumption. So uh, it it was really, um, for me, welcoming um, to have such a subtle um, uh, uh, and a complex study that avoided uh, oversimplification, uh, either in terms of a nutrient or in terms of um, what we should eat or what we should avoid. And the basic question is more physical activity. It recommends, it recommends. And one of the things is going to be difficult, I think it recommends um, is uh, more salads. I'll I'll, I'll give an example why salads, (laughs) even for Indian vegetarians is a complicated thing. Uh, And that's where culture uh, matters. My mother has been a vegetarian for the last 40 years and uh, she has never had a salad Uh, and partly because Indian notions of uh, cooked food uh, is that salad does not count in the cooked food category and because she lives she has lived in Balasore in Orissa a coastal uh, Indian uh, state and now she lives in Delhi in India it is probably protective not to have salads uh, partly because of contamination of water uh, and produce so Sociologists have studied, who, have, who study food, like there's a group, uh, Alan Ward's group in Manchester University, they argue that food is more habitual than available to consciousness and conscious change. They call it uh, kind of a, a more practice oriented. So one of the challenges in this study, which recommends, for instance, less cooked vegetables, raw vegetables, of course, that is and would be an improvement, dietary improvement in North America. Uh, but that, I see, is going to be a bit of a problem of cultural constructions of what is good to eat and what is edible. Mm.
0: That's an important point, uh, Krishnandu, uh, Dr. Neela Shah is still with us. Dr. Shah, I wonder if you can respond to what Krishnandu shared.
1: Absolutely. Well, first, Professor A, I want to say that I completely agree that... Uh, sometimes I think people look for simple solutions that aren't always so simple if you start digging into them. And and I, I think that that's one of the benefits of how the Masala program has addressed dietary pattern, but you're absolutely correct. It's it's not as simple as it, as telling somebody to eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is it's, uh, particularly important to re- recognize that the masala program represents south asian americans and so there's uh, a lot more than a lot more to take into account that it includes things like acculturation and length of stay in the u.s and the environments in which people live uh, and so i i too like i think pro- uh professor ray would i too would caution against extrapolating some of the dietary recommendations we might learn from the Masala study of South Asian Americans beyond the South Asian American population. Um, But uh, to the point that uh, Dr. Ray made about, excuse me, Professor Ray made about um, the the different types of dietary patterns that were identified in the Masala program, vegetarianism being one of them, I, I would fully agree that there's often a conflation of healthful foods with vegetarianism, uh, which isn't necessarily the case. And so it, it does, I think, require much more nuance than asking people if they're eating kind of a more simplistic notion of what a dietary pattern is, like fruits and vegetables and whole mm-hmm. grains.
0: Uh, given what you've learned from the Masala study so far, uh, Dr. Shah, how has that changed the way you communicate with your your patients of South Asian descent, if it has changed at all?
1: so the the first thing that i think that uh, a clinician who's seeing a patient really ought to practice doing uh is taking a thorough dietary pattern uh history or asking somebody what they eat and it's not as easy as just saying what do you eat every day um and and it can be time consuming to do that but as i think the masala program has shown us the relationship of dietary pattern and food to cardiovascular health and overall health is an important one. And so I've started to be a little bit more detailed in trying to understand what the patterns of different types of foods that people are eating are, uh, both in South Asian and non-South Asian populations. Um, but when I have patients who are South Asian, uh, I, I try to better understand what the mix of Western style and and um, And South Asian style foods are and try to gently redirect individuals who really lean on the uh, equivalence of vegetarianism being healthy because there's some recent work in the Masala program that has confirmed what Professor Ray said which is that there are both healthy plant-based diets and unhealthy plant based diets and of individuals who eat a plant-based diet of those individuals who consumed a less healthy plant-based diet, uh, which includes a uh, predominance of things like fruit juices and refined grains and white potatoes and sugar-sweetened beverages and, and sugar added sugar to foods, these are foods that are vegetarian, but they're less likely to be healthful. Um, we see more cardiovascular risk factors in those individuals. And so really kind of digging down and Understanding what a more daily pattern of eating pattern is is becoming increasingly important. I think in a physician's
0: office. Uh, Frederick's calling in from Woodbridge. Frederick, what's your question or comment?
3: Sure. Uh, one is for Doctor. Sh- I have two questions. One is for Doctor. Shah. Uh, the visceral adipose tissue in in the thoracic area is associated with high risk for cardiovascular disease. Estrogen has been shown in postmenopausal women to prevent accumulation of visceral to in the thorax. What is he
0: th- Oh Frederick, the- it looks like we're having we're having trouble hearing your full question, but i'll I, I think I'll paraphrase uh, from our call screener for Dr. Shaw. Uh, he wanted to know about the use of hormones to prevent heart disease. What can you say there?
1: Now, that's an important question. And what I think I heard uh, Frederick saying is there's some evidence that suggests that uh, the use of hormones like estrogen may reduce the amount of ectopic fat uh, in in the thoracic cavity, so in the chest. Um, I would be hesitant to recommend that as a strategy just because I don't think that it's one that's been specifically tested in a clinical trial. I am, however... Uh, informed a little bit by some of the evidence from a few decades ago about uh, hormone supplementation for the prevention of heart disease, which did not show a significant benefit. This was primarily in women. Um, And so I I can't really extrapolate those findings, but I think that before uh, one could say that would be an effective strategy to reduce the risk in this population, I, I think that would deserve further study.
0: I want to get back uh, to something that Krishnendu Ray from NYU shared about um, we think about uh, raw vegetables and and uh, how that uh, may not be a uh, part of, of of a a daily uh, meal plan uh, for South Asians. And I'm also thinking about exercise. Uh, we played uh, part of that uh, audio from a Punjabi fitness video on the Masala website, uh, Doctor Shah. But when we think even about um, lifestyle and expecting uh, maybe uh, people uh, to exercise more, but if it's not part of you know how they've been brought up, you know how do you incorporate that um, or how do you counsel uh, your patients uh, to maybe adopt uh more exercise you know if they are at higher risk?
2: See you asking me
0: Oh, I brought up uh, the point that you made about you know there are different uh cultural um, yeah. um aspects as well, and so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about that when we when we think about exercise I'll start with dr. Shaw okay.
1: sure uh the first thing I think i try to impress upon individuals is that anything is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. And and I, I would say that uh, there certainly is a high level of sedentary behaviors in the South Asian population and probably in non-South Asian populations as well. Um, but the primary encouragement is anything is better than nothing. And I think that There sometimes do seem to be some misconceptions that exercise necessarily requires exercise equipment or uh, exercising at a moderate or really vigorous intensity to the point that someone is sweating and breathless. But I, I, especially for individuals who are starting from a primarily sedentary uh, day to day lifestyle, I, I encourage them to recalibrate their assessment of something like walking for exercise. Walking is spectacular exercise and i usually will counsel individuals to take a little bit of time uh, when they can fit it in their day uh, if they are already building in breaks like at a lunch break or if they um, take the bus getting off uh, a few stops early and getting a few minutes of walking in and then slowly and gradually building that up but one other point that you made lucy that i think is important is that uh, there are cultural nuances to exercise uh, that uh, ought to be considered, uh, perhaps primarily in the immigrant South Asian population, but this may be relevant for all, uh, when we think about cultural and gender norms, about exercising and, and exercising in uh, mixed sex spaces um, and the expectation of what individuals in different uh, who identify as different genders would be doing. Um, And I think it's kind of incumbent upon us as clinicians and when I'm thinking about people who work in public health to help create spaces that uh, would be safe and favorable and and culturally appropriate for people to exercise. So uh, the level of physical activity uh, as measured in the Masala study is relatively low. uh, And so there's certainly room for improvement. And the task I think is not only encouraging graduated increases in physical activity but also identifying culturally adapted strategies or culturally tailored strategies that that would align with somebody's conceptualization of, of the norms in their community of, of what's appropriate for activity
0: and krishnan what's your take
2: yeah no that's a uh, that's a very good rule something is better than nothing and I think uh, that's an important uh, takeaway. And and one is a cultural thing. Uh, and I I'm hoping it'll also show up in the Masala study in terms of generational cohort. I think it's the older immigrant generation that is coming from a culture where physical activity was something you uh, avoided partly because it was work. It was laborious work. And we have seen that sociological association where you have a lot of physical activity. Poor working class people doing it. Middle class and upper class people tend to avoid it because it is associated with a certain kind of class activity. So one is that uh, structure of kind of thinking about uh, work and working out uh, is uh, uh, has to change, and it is already changing in India uh, with the with the younger generation. I think the second aspect is an infrastructural aspect that is important. Um, it, 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 the early part of my study was done from around, I think, uh, Dr. Shah's neighborhood around Chicago, Naperville, which has become an important part of a South Asian population. Uh, uh, it, it, suburban communities are often not designed for uh, uh, walking uh, in, in, with an interesting landscape or a sidewalk. I had the toughest time. I didn't know when I came to the U.S., I didn't know how to drive. And I had the toughest time... Uh, uh, making something an interesting walk because I would often uh, stick out as the, this guy what is he doing walking down the side of the road where often there are no sidewalks So there's an infrastructural issue compared to right now in Manhattan, where I live. I walk about six miles a day. It is fun and interesting. Sidewalks are fantastic. Now there are even bike lanes, a thousand kilometers of bike lanes uh, in New York City. Cities are also becoming interesting uh, uh, spaces where we can uh, work out and South Asians should take advantage of it.
0: Mm, that's an important point. Uh, infrastructure is um, important too. Again, you're hearing Krishnendu Ray, a professor of food and nutrition studies at New York University, author of "The Migrant's Table: Meals and Memories in Bengali American Households." He'll stay with us, but I want to thank uh, Dr. Neelia Shaw, cardiologist and faculty at Northwestern University School of Medicine, co-investigator at the Masala Study. We're going you can learn more at our website ctpublic.org/wherewelive. Uh, you know, just a um, to sum it all up, um, the the study uh, to Dr. Shaw was really um, to help develop a better risk calculator that uh, that uh, doctors and others uh, can use to diagnose people more at risk uh, to understand this population better.
1: It's certainly work that's being ongoing, uh, and as we follow these individuals for longer, I think we'll learn more about how. Risk develops over time, uh, and to Doctor uh, uh, to Professor Ray's point, I think there's a lot left to be learned across generations as well. So we're certainly excited for what we'll learn.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Doctor Shaw. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we talk to a Connecticut dietitian about the conversations she has with South Asian clients about diet and health. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Now we've been learning today why people of South Asian ancestry living in the U.S. have higher cardiovascular disease risk compared to other racial and ethnic groups. Diet can be a risk factor, but telling someone to avoid certain foods is challenging when food is an important part of a person's culture and identity. Joining us now is a Connecticut dietitian who's worked with South Asian clients. Shadat is on the phone with us, a dietitian and nutritionist. She has her own practice uh, Nutra edge and she's president of the Connecticut Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Shraddha, welcome to our show. Uh,
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sorry, I lost the connection on my Zoom. I hope you all can hear me okay from my phone. Yes,
0: Yes, we hear you loud and clear. Thank you. So when we think about um, how you work with your clients, I understand you came up with a, a, a food coaching that uses dots for particular food. Can you describe that for us?
3: Uh, Yes, basically, you know, the uh, food coach dot system started with uh, Indian community uh, when I was living in Indiana. Uh, So Indian Women Association, they wanted to do uh, a a, a recipe book for the Indian community. And they were asking me if there is any way I can, you know, label those recipes like, you know, uh, um, heart healthy, uh, diabetic friendly. Uh, you know, weight loss uh, uh, kind of recipes and that gave me uh, yeah, That made me think, you know, what I can do because you cannot label, you know, one food uh, heart-healthy and other food, you know, uh, diabetic-friendly or, you know, weight-friendly. It's, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a combination of, you know, um, uh, 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 basically a diet and then um, I did another recipe book for another client, and she had a bunch of recipes uh, from her family, and she wanted to um, come compile all those recipes uh, as a Christmas gift to her family. But all those fam- all those recipes were like, you know, tra- traditional recipes, you know, a lot of, you know, fried food and, you know, food high in sugar and, you know, made with, you know, white flour. And then she also asked the same thing that, you know, uh, these are traditional recipes I want to preserve, but also I want my family to eat healthy. And, you know, this these recipes have a lot of emotional involvement, so they might, you know, uh, end up eating every day. So that, you know, um, generated the Dart system. So basically, um, you know, I put all of my nutrition knowledge and experience into my Dart system. So what I came up with, you know, green dot, yellow dot, you know, green, yellow dot and red dot food. So green dot foods basically they are you know lower in calories and they are high in nutrients and a good balance of you know salt, um, uh, fat and sugar, and they make you know healthy snack. Uh, so basically, it starts with the calorie because every every calorie matters, every bite matters. Mm-hmm. So yellow dot foods are also like moderate in calories and high in nutrients, so they make a healthy snack. And green like yellow that. dot calories sorry yeah they will provide you like you know enough calories to make a meal and the interesting uh, thing is our red dot food so you know red dot foods will be you know um, either higher in calories or you know low in fiber high in sugar high in fat so basically this food can be healthy in every way but if it does not have and a fiber, then that would be a red dot. It's more like, you know, brings the
0: awareness, the dot. And that. thank you for uh, explaining that a dot system. It's definitely helpful for people as they think about, you know, foods to prepare and thinking about moderation. But also, you know, um, I think it's important to say, you know, not all of the, the food that South Asians eat is considered unhealthy, but the, the, the important part is thinking about ways to maybe um, change up how something is prepared or to eat it in moderation because, as you mentioned and our other guests mentioned, that connection to food and culture is important.
3: Absolutely. So so basically, you know, what, what I tell to my, uh, you know, Asian, not only Asian clients, to, you know, all the clients, so there are three enemies of your health. is. Salt, sugar, and fat. No matter what culture you are in, you need to wash these three ingredients, you know, so we need salt, yes, we need sugar, and also we need fat, but you know, it has to be in moderation. And then it's very difficult to explain, like, you know, how many percent of calories should come from fat or how much, you know, carb you can have, because it becomes very complicated and very intense. So for that reason, you know, I created this DOT system. The DOT system will tell you, you know, based on the calories you are getting from that food, uh, how much sugar and how much salt and how much fat mm. is uh, you know a healthy range in yeah. there. So my vision when I started this system, you know, it's still in very, uh, you know, preliminary stage. Uh, a lot of you know, more work needs to be done. But my vision was in the grocery store, everywhere, in every box, you should have a dot. That mm. dot does not mean that it's unhealthy food you need to avoid, but it just, it will bring you... It, it will make people aware, like, hey, it's a red dot because it's mm. low in fiber or right. low in, you know, high in sugar or you know, high in salt, things like that. And because thank you for
0: describing out. that. Trad, uh, uh, Krishnendu Ray is still with us from NYU. I mentioned, uh, I believe you're a Bengali, and so I'm wondering if you can just share with us some of your favorite foods uh, to end the show, Krishnendu.
2: Yeah, I think one common uh, common thing is. Uh, most uh, Indian communities, and here our uh, uh, extended South Asian communities, there's a phrase, Hindustani phrase, which says, "Kose kose chare kose which is every two mile the water changes, every four the language. And I think wherever there's a language, it's a geography, and it's also availability of uh, local foods. And so, um, <clears throat> South Asians have a rich repertoire of sautéed greens, uh, greens cooked lightly, say in uh, in Bengali specifically, there's a jhal recipe which has fresh ground mustard uh, and uh, you, uh, you can add any greens to it and all kinds of vegetables. Uh, so I love kind of a chakchori, which has various kinds of greens, uh, pumpkins, and it squashes a little bit of potato too uh, and, uh, uh, and then finished with five spice that has things like um, uh, fennel in it and cumin etc so there's a rich repertoire all over south asia of very interesting and good good cooked greens which are already there in a repertoire and contributes to a potentially very healthy diet
0: Mm. well it's been a pleasure to hear from you i'd love I can't wait to read your book again. Krishnendu Ray, he's a professor of food and nutrition studies at NYU, wrote The Migrant's Table, Meals and Memories in Bengali American Households. I understand there's some recipes in there too, Krishnendu. Thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And also thanks to Shradha Chobi, who's a dietitian and nutritionist, uh, her practice Pledge, and president of the Connecticut Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for joining us here on the show. We thank you for your time as well. I'm Lucy Nalpithanshal. Today's show is produced by Sujata Srinivasan with help from our talk show intern, Mira Raju. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We're back tomorrow. We hope you join us.